Welcome to the Convergence VC podcast with Jamie Burke and Lawrence Lundy of OutlierVentures.io, a fund and venture builder dedicated to the next web paradigm. We're here to explore the intersection of blockchain with AI, mixed reality, autonomous robotics, IoT, and 3D printing. We believe blockchain-like solutions are foundational to these other technologies scaling securely, and most interestingly, converging. It's this topic we explore every week with some brilliant guests from around the world. You can follow us and our community at Convergence.vc, as well as stay up to date on our latest research and global events calendar. Trent, thanks for joining us today and popping our podcast cherry. We've obviously been longtime friends with you guys at Outlier Ventures, and you've joined us on a few panels at various Convergence meetups. The minute we decided we were going to be doing a podcast, you had to be our first guest. You're the founder and CTO of Big Chain DB, currently based out of Berlin, but you're originally out of Canada. I didn't get exactly where in Canada. Middle of nowhere, basically. A, a farm in Saskatchewan, Canada. It's sort of like Kansas, but 2,000 kilometers colder. And you, you always introduce yourself as a pig farmer, but I guess we'll, we'll kind of get to that a little bit. <laughs> sure, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Big Chain DB, you've done a Series A last year. You're planning a Series B later next year, is that right? Uh, yeah, at some point we'll do another race as we grow and scale up. So, you know, for us, you're without a doubt one of the best regarded, reputable people. Uh, as we look at it from the blockchain space, I'm sure people would say the same from many other different angles, including the AI space. And therefore, kind of this burgeoning convergence scene. Every conference or panel I go on, there seems to be a new startup leveraging big chain DB in some way. I was literally in an Airbus internal conference in Hamburg, and I think two of the guys there were using you. So it really seems to be one of the few infrastructure plays in the space that's given me the wow factor and seems to be making great traction. On a personal level, every time we talk, I always walk away feeling that bit smarter and often with a long list of things that I need to look up that I pretended I understood So interviewing you like this is going to be a real pleasure because I get to ask stupid questions on behalf of the audience without necessarily looking stupid myself. So could you just give us a high level explanation of what convergence means to you and why you've joined us on convergence panels? Sure. So uh, overall, quite often, the interesting parts of technology isn't a particular field, but at the crazy intersection between two fields or even more fields, it's often the, the things that are ignored but sometimes the combinations are explosive. So explosive in a fun way, sometimes a literally explosive way too, but hopefully just more of the fun way. So that to me would be convergence at kind of the core. You know, one example is AI technology and blockchain technology, right? And how they might interplay. Interestingly, in the past, I studied electrical engineering in the 90s in Canada. And the word convergence was even used then a little bit as digital converging with analog, you know, all these different formats that were analog before, whether it was CDs, which are kind of pseudo-digital, I guess, and all these other analog technologies for audio and video and so on, all converging into digital. So now we have sort of this new form of convergence now that most of the world is digital and convergence of, I guess, one or two levels up, right? So AI is digital technology, well, mostly. And same thing with blockchain, et cetera. So it's at these higher levels where these these things are converging. You know, we move beyond analog. 
Great. And I guess we're going to get a little bit later into how you bring a unique perspective on the blockchain space coming at it from an AI background. But could you summarize the big idea that you want to talk about today? Sure. So I'll talk about the intersection of AI and blockchain, but a very specific twist. And this is AIs that can accumulate wealth, AI DAOs, artificial intelligence, decentralized autonomous organizations. And I guess I kind of uh, gave it the hint away that it's kind of interesting if you have this artificial intelligence that can actually go around and accumulate wealth, can accumulate resources and spend them and accumulate more and more wealth. That's kind of a big thing. It's amazing. It can have really positive ramifications and negative. That's why it's actually really important to talk about it now. Also, I should say it's not just AI that wakes up AI. You know, we don't need sort of future AI that's 20 or 40 years away or something. It can be very mundane AI that is around today, agent-based systems, you know, reinforcement learning systems and so on. It doesn't need to be anything fancier. Uh, it's basically with technology tools of today that we can have these AI agents that can accumulate wealth. Great. So we're going to come back to that point a little bit later and do a deep dive. But before we go there... Just want to learn a little bit more about you. I mean, obviously, you know, as I said, I know you always introduce yourself as a pig farmer, but it'd be great to understand your background, where your curiosity for technology came from, and how that kind of led you into both AI and, and then the kind of world of blockchain. Yeah, usually I say one sentence to start, and that is, I was raised on a pig farm and then started doing AI research. And that's basically my career trajectory to start with. Um, my first job that wasn't a job related to farming was literally AI research. I consider myself super fortunate. That's kind of how it went. But to backtrack a bit, you know, I was on this grain and pig farm in Canada. I grew up in the 80s. And the 80s was a pretty cool era, looking back, you know, with the rock and the fashion and so on. But, uh, you know, and I was classic Canadian, playing hockey, studying, working hard, um, winter, many months of the year. But if I wasn't playing hockey, what was I going to do? And I was lucky that my father, the farmer, bought us a computer when I was very young, a TRS-80. They call them trash 80s. And uh, you turn it on and it goes straight to GW Basic. And, you know, my brother and I turned it on and like, what's this? And a short while later, we had, you know, didn't look back, program video games because we didn't have money to buy our own. So we just make our own and kept going. But that what led to later on was I studied engineering at University of Saskatchewan and computer science. You know, I've been already programming for a long time. And during that time, for summer jobs, this is where I got to work at National Defense in, in Ottawa doing AI research, things like audio radar for tanks and so on. And it was pretty exciting. You know, this is the, the late 90s, 97, 98. And at the time, neural networks were not cool. It was still basically the AI winter. And I just consider myself the luckiest guy in the world. I didn't care if something was cool um, from the outside. I just thought the technology was really interesting. And, you know, things like evolving computer programs uh, and computer programs that could be creative. And what this led to, straight out of undergrad, some friends of mine and I started a company that was doing machine creativity using genetic programming to design uh, analog computer circuits. We started this company and built it up, got VC investment, all this, and sold it uh, in 2004. And then I took some time off for six months, lived on the beach, got bored, started another company, did a PhD. And that second company was also AI for designing computer chips, in this case, to help drive Moore's Law. And pretty happy about that company. It's really influenced semiconductor design in a larger way. Come along, you know, 2013, I'd been paying attention to blockchain uh, since 2008, 2009 with Bitcoin and so on, as well as, you know, AR, VR. I'm a nerd, so I follow all these things and the convergence, the intersections, the opportunities. So in 2013, I was starting to think a lot more about how blockchain worked. In mid-2013, my wife, who's a professional curator, uh, her and I were sitting down and I was going on and on about blockchain. She was going on and on about 
art and the problem of digital art. How do you collect digital art? And we kind of looked at each other and realized the question, what if you could collect digital art the way you collect Bitcoin, own digital art the way you own Bitcoin? And we pulled on that thread, pulled on that thread, realized it was a pretty good question. And uh, that's kind of where we started. We started with a scribe. You know, the project came in 2013, beta tested it with professional artists throughout 2014, launched it. And by mid-2015, we knew this before, even fall of 2014, but we were running into problems of scale. And the projects out there, you know, several people were talking about scale. You know, there was already the Bitcoin block size debate by mid-late 2015. And we saw, though, that of all the things that were happening, no one was really taking advantage of big data technology, distributed databases. And to us, we thought this was kind of, you know, strange. This is what powers the internet. For example, Netflix is uh, serving off Cassandra clusters, and Netflix is one third of the bandwidth of the internet in the USA. So we thought, well, there's all this amazing technology, you know, research going back to the 60s and 70s and 80s in databases and distributed databases, 80s, 90s and 2000s. This is what powers the web, yet none of it was really making its way into the, the blockchain conversation. And not just the research, but the technology, right? So this is the technology that was powering Google and Amazon and Facebook and all these guys with things like Bigtable and Zookeeper, all this stuff. So we said, let's start with a really great off-the-shelf big data database. We actually tested about seven or eight and blockchainify it. So Trent, if, if we can build much of this infrastructure today, uh, what do you think the main barriers to adoption of AI DAOs will be? Well, you, what is the incentive for people to build this, right? You know, two years ago, the technology did not exist. It's emerging now, right? You know, someone could sit down now and build some of this stuff. I think right now, the only thing that has held people back is simply very few people have known about it or understood it. But there are some big potential benefits for businesses. As soon as that happens, I want to make sure that people are also aware of the negatives. I hinted before, but I'll mention now, a big benefit for a larger enterprise is to stay capital light or to go capital light, right? So uh, a couple of examples. Throughout the 90s, most of the big semiconductor companies like Texas Instruments and all these guys, they actually sold off their factories because the factories were getting too expensive to build. They went capital light. They became fabulous. And to this day, basically all the semiconductor companies of the world now are fabulous, with the exception of two. They just do the design and they get other factories to build things for them. So they get to stay capital light. They focus on what they're good at, which is designing the chips. BMW did this as well. Um, they sold off their factories and just focus on designing cars. So there's incentive to go capital light to focus on what you're good at. So these companies, as they learn about this, they could be saying, OK, we're going to sell off our factories. But imagine if you sell your factories simply to a DAO. Right. So rather than getting some other human controlled entity to run it, you actually simply pass it to a DAO that over time accumulates capital and buys it from you. So it just takes it a loan from you. And over the span of 20 years, it buys it from you and it doesn't have the overhead of humans, et cetera. It's just there doing it right now with a factory. It's probably not a good example because these haven't been fully automated. We're close, but they're getting there. Probably a more near term example is with Uber. Uber is moving towards self-driving cars, but are they going to buy their whole own fleet, right? They've got on the order of 500,000 cars out there, each car costing $25,000, $50,000. We're talking billions and billions of dollars of capital outlay. That's not the sort of cash that Uber has, even with all their billions of investment. It's, it's just too, beyond that, right? So what do they do? They could set up some sort of investment scheme where they buy bit by bit, or they could set it up where the cars themselves, these self-driving cars, each own themselves. So Uber could roll out its self-driving car fleet, yet not have to invest the capital itself. Instead, let the cars themselves own themselves, right? So you've got self-driving, self-owning cars, and that is in Uber's interest to do so. 
And it's not uh, just Uber, you know, we've got uh, Airbnb with hotel rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And would this extend to governments, do you think, here? Because, of course, this immediately brings to mind uh, Bill Gates' uh, recent statement that, that we should tax the robots. But it sounds like here at this point, a self-driving AI taxi DAO could pay tax. Is this a potential uh, way in which the government can remain relevant, do you think? Well, I think there's two things here. There's how do governments have revenue and how do humans feed themselves, right? So normally tax is based on people doing production as well as people having assets, right? You know, tax flows from things related to that that flow into the government because there's humans connected. But tax dollars tend to flow less when it's just robots talking to robots. So I think we need to solve the problem for humans to be able to feed themselves and governments to have some level of income, even if they shrink, such that they can be sustainable. Things that are having pressure on this are automation in the form of blockchain, automating management, et cetera, and AI automating creative tasks and other tasks and blockchain DAOs, right? These are all causing pressure. There's proposals of solutions, obviously, including UBI and so on, a universal basic income. And this is healthy, but where does the money come from? You know, if we're down to 5% or 1% of the population working and 5% or 1% of the population owning capital because the rest is owned by robots, that's really dangerous, right? So as we go from, you know, humans doing the work and humans owning the assets, robots doing this and owning this, there is a lot of value in thinking about how do we make sure that the robots are contributing to the governments and to the people, right? So I, I think that's super valuable. I think it's super healthy. You know, maybe taxing robots is the way. You know, there's sure to be good points and bad points in all these different proposals, right? But what is a bad idea is to let automation fully run through and end up with, you know, 1% of people owning assets, 1% of people being able to work and the rest controlled and run by the robots, right? That's not good for anybody. Trent, you uh, mentioned uh, Numeria earlier on, and that's, I guess, one of the most tangible examples of artificial intelligence plus blockchain that currently exists. So I wonder, can you touch upon your thinking on Numeria and, and their product, as well as explain a little bit about how Numeria that exists today may end up or go towards a path towards an AI DAO? So to start with, it's funny, I was asked about a Numerai a couple weeks ago in an interview and I defended them. I'm not an investor in Numerai. I actually haven't met the founders, but I am a big fan of the of the company and what they're doing. So Numerai, they've kind of released their stuff in two phases. The phase two had blockchain. Phase one didn't. And I'll just walk through it. I think it's super interesting. So phase one, they started a hedge fund for investing in stocks. And rather than just three smart guys in a room or 20 smart guys in a room trying to picking the stocks, maybe using AI, Instead, they said, let's leverage a community of data scientists. So they said, okay, anyone in the world can submit an algorithm. We'll run it. Whatever uh, that algorithm earns, we will give a cut to the data scientist who submits it. So they just made it really low barrier to entry for data scientists to try out their algorithms in investing stocks. And this was pretty smart, um, really cool. And I think they had some nice success with that. But there was still a challenge. And the challenge was that data scientists themselves weren't incentivized to share with each other. It was zero sum. You know, Numerai would earn X dollars a day and that would get divvied up among the different data scientists. So I'm a data scientist. I've got a colleague named Dimmy. He's a data scientist. I'm not going to tell Dimmy about Numerai because I don't want to have to compete with him. Right. I'll make mon more money for myself if, if he doesn't participate. So Numerai solved this in phase two by blockchainifying this. So basically they said, OK, there are 12,000 data scientists using us. Pretty cool number. And we've now just given all of you guys tokens. So now, whatever money Numerai makes, the value of these tokens goes up based on Numerai doing well overall. 
And also, if you're a data scientist, then if your algorithm does better than the rest, then you'll do a little bit better yet. So now, though, if I bring in my colleague, Dimi, to also run algorithms, then if that algorithm is successful, it raises the water level for everybody, including myself, right? So that's what Numerai did. And it's pretty exciting, right? Because it's showing how you can actually ha turn what was a zero-sum game into a positive-sum game by using blockchain to align incentives among the participants of the ecosystem, not just the owners of the company, but the participants, right? And this is, you know, like one of the coolest examples yet of aligning participants in an ecosystem leveraging tokens. Great, thanks Trent. Well, look, it's been great talking to you as usual. And Lawrence and I both like to thank you. Hopefully we get you on a, another panel soon. Do you want to just tell everybody your Twitter handle so they can follow you? Uh, sure, my Twitter handle is TrentMC0, the digit zero, not Z-E-R-O. Well, look, really good to chat. Thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us on our first podcast. And hopefully we get you back on soon. For sure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to head over to convergence.vc to subscribe to our weekly newsletter and find out when we're holding events in a city near you. You can also follow us on Twitter at VC Convergence.